Jesus' name, amen. I tried to make the case last week, so I'm going to do a little bit of a review, that Romans 3, 21 to 26 is maybe the most important passage in the Bible, at least one of them. And yet, I know that it's not a warm and fuzzy passage, and it doesn't feel all that accessible. And so when you read it, you kind of feel like, yeah, I'll go over to Psalm 23, thank you. Or I'm going to read uh, Matthew 11:28 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. You know, there are wonderful and warm promises in the scriptures. And yet, Donald Gray Barnhouse said, um, this is the heart of the Bible. And the great New Testament scholar Leon Morris said, this is the most important paragraph ever written in any language. So, I try to make the case that this is true and that we need to invest our time, and we're investing three weeks at least. I'm thinking of doing this every year. Last time I preached this very series three years ago. An outline for you if you, if you want to use it. Um, and, and so the subject of the paragraph is righteousness, and in this case it means how can a mortal, how can a human being like you or me, sinners, how can we ever be right with holy God, that is the most important question to ask and to answer. And Romans 3, 21 to 26 does it with more condensed meaning than just about any passage I can think of. And so let me just remind you of what we talked about last week very quickly. We talked about what it means to be righteous with God and pointed out that righteousness, this kind of righteousness, can never come from human effort, ever. And instead, God has always planned from eternity past that the gift of righteousness would come from Him, a gift, not something that we gin up or are able to produce on our own strength. Therefore, that gift of righteousness comes from, from somebody else. It is the righteousness that he gives us, but it's not ours. It comes from another. The Puritans used to call this alien righteousness. And I ended by trying to say, this righteousness is everybody's most desperate need. And I told you a story about an avalanche and a guy who cluelessly walked into an avalanche area not knowing that the mountain was going to come down if he did not get out. Well, so now we're prepared to revisit this text again. And I want to try to show you how important words are. God chose the vocabulary he used. He certainly used mortal human beings and their own vocabulary. But this is not a book just of ideas. Some people say, well, yeah, the ideas are what's important. Yeah, the ideas are communicated in specific words that God gave us. And so, um, words can wound. Uh, you could say something to somebody today that would scar their life. I'm confident that that could happen. Parents can tell children things that they'll never live down. It'll brand them forever. Or you could say something that might change somebody's life forever for the better. And so, when I say three little words, what do you think of? I'm really asking. This isn't rhetorical. Like I said last week, I'll tell you when to speak and when not. Okay. So, pardon? My love. 
I love you too. Oh, that was your answer. Oh, okay. All right. Wasn't sure. Yeah. I love you. Those three words. Is that what you think of? I love you. Don't do that. Okay, that's a good one. That a mom speaks. We husbands know that one of the best three words that we should say is, I'm so sorry. Or you can also use, I was wrong. Anyway, I love you is pretty good. Well, I want to make the case that what we're going to talk about is God's way of saying I love you, but it's a little more complex than those words. So I want to, last week we focused on verses 21, 22, and 23. I want to look at um, three not-so-little words, and I'll read it again, but you see I've lifted the text up, verses 24 and 25. So, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, so, you know, faith is the link between this righteousness that is given us as a gift and our receiving it, obviously. For there is no distinction, I tried to tell you why he said that, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness. Yeah, we're going to focus on 25 and 26 next week. And I, I want to really camp on what was he trying to prove? What is he trying to show? But anyway, verse 26, I won't touch on much today. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If you have a paraphrase, if you got the new living or the message even or uh, you know, New Century Bible or something like that. This is, it won't do you that much good today. I, it's a paraphrase, and see, a paraphrase is some guy who who wants to take the translated word and make it more palatable, so you'll understand it. But if you're trying to understand the words that God gave you, not so helpful. I'm not down on the New Living much, but. I, I'm just saying you might want to glance over at the new, you know, the English Standard or New American Standard or something like that for this. So let me point out, um, I want you to notice in verse 24, there's the word justified. And then in the same verse, there's the word redemption. And then in verse 25, the hardest word of all is the word propitiation. And if you've got an NIV or a New Living, you don't have the word propitiation. And shame on them for not putting that word in there. And I'm going to say why in a minute. And I'm sure they'll come running and saying, oh, Jim, tell us why we should do that differently. Yeah, but anyway, one guy, one voice, I'm saying, hey, poor translation. So let's just talk about justification for a minute. Justification is a wonderful word, um, and you see it in just verse 24, like I pointed out a minute ago. We are justified, I'm using the Noun, and again, at the end, he says just and justifier. And so this is the world of forensics. This is the world of legal things. This word justification it puts us into a courtroom. And um, it is a word, each of these words has at its center the Lord Jesus hanging on a cross. 
but each one highlights a slightly different aspect of our sin, the problem that sin creates for us and what God did about it. So justification is all legal. Now, I think you already know what justification means, but let me try to sneak up on it this way. I'm the teacher, see, and I say, little Johnny, or little Jimmy, little Johnny, what is your justification for not turning in your homework today? All the other boys and girls did. And you're little Johnny, and what do you say? Yeah. So that is your justification. Justification is a way, it, it is a, um, a way of proving that you are still up on a standard. The standard is homework is in today. Johnny doesn't have homework, but he justifies himself by saying, well, my dog ate it. Now, whether that's going to fly with the teacher, I think is quite unlikely. When we talk about justification, we face the truth that our sin, our breaking of God's law provides us with this horrible position of God's judgment, righteous judgment upon us. It puts us in a position, and can I show you that the justification that we're talking about is not Johnny justifying himself, as in the case of the classroom, but here in the courtroom, it's God justifying us, proving a reason, giving a reason why we are innocent before God's justice. Now, think about the charges. I wonder if you can imagine, try to, try to imagine being in a courtroom. I don't know if you've ever been indicted for uh, you know, a criminal offense or something and you've had to face this, and I'm not going to ask you, but uh, try to imagine that you're, imagine this the divine judgment and you're in this long line that winds through the clouds. I know it doesn't wind through the clouds, but just imagine, okay? So you're like dreading ever closer you're getting to your own time in court and you know by seeing the people ahead of you that there's going to be an indictment read and it's not pretty and you know what you've done and you're dreading the moment when that is read out and finally it's your turn now I I want you to know that this indictment is actually written out in Romans chapter 1 and so I want you to turn back or scroll back you tablet people um, and uh, look at verses 18 and following so what I want to do is kind of read an indictment Imagine yourself standing there, and I'm not going to read word for word. I'm going to kind of skip over things and try to summarize them. But imagine that I'm reading the indictment, and the God of heaven, the judge of all the earth, is sitting there presiding over this court. And the indictment goes this way. So, Your Honor, God of heaven, Your wrath is revealed justly so, because she, He has suppressed the truth about you and in fact replaced it with a lie. You have provided ample evidence of your greatness and glory, but instead she is turned away. He has denied the truth and doesn't honor you ever for the position that you hold in the universe. And so though 
He considers himself to be wise. He's nothing but a fool. And he's actually exchanged your glory for things that you have created, O God. And Lord, you have given them up. These people in the courtroom, she and he, have given themselves over to impurity and immorality. And they have committed offenses that are offenses not only against your law, but against your very created order. And furthermore, um, now I'm looking at verse 28, um, they don't acknowledge you and they have a debased mind. And what you see before you, Lord, is a man, is a woman who is filled with, and then there's a whole long list, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, Envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. She's a gossip. He's a slanderer. They hate God. They're insolent, haughty, boastful, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And Lord, not only knowing the decree that you gave them, that people who do such things deserve death, they not only do them, but, O oh, judge of all the earth, they approve and encourage other people to do them too. Now, that is the very indictment that God wrote out in His Word for people who don't know Christ. This is the Gentile world, but it applies to every one of us. And imagine even further, it, if it could be worse, let me suggest how it's worse. We have all done... Now, so this is like a blanket indictment for all of us. We all fit under this. But you and I have done things that are specific sins unto ourselves. Five years ago, you did something, or five minutes ago, well, probably not five minutes ago, maybe, um, that you're ashamed of, that you never want anyone to know about. And in a way, maybe you thought you kind of said sorry to God and nobody will ever know. What if those things were brought out? What if every secret of your heart were revealed? It's going to be. That's what the scripture says. So here you are before Almighty God and you cannot even raise your eyes. I mean, you, you are, you're both ashamed and afraid. And there's silence. In the whole celestial kingdom, there's silence. And... Finally, the voice of God comes. And he says, I pronounce this defendant innocent of all charges. And you, and he points across the, across the courtroom at another person. And he says, you are guilty of everything. It was you. And you realize to your amazement and kind of almost horror that he is pointing at Jesus. God declares you not just not guilty. Not guilty means there's not enough evidence. You know, some decades ago there was a famous trial where a famous ex-athlete um, was charged with murdering his ex-wife and her uh, friend. And there was a big old trial, and a lot of America watched it. And uh, at the end of it, he was, I mean, the not guilty verdict came through. And pretty much, 
all of America knew that he, so he was not innocent. He just, they, the court system, the prosecutor, the jury, they all failed, in my humble opinion. Well, that's not your judgment. That's not what happened to you when you trusted Christ. What happened to you was, God says, there's absolutely no evidence. You're perfect. Now, how in the world did he ever accomplish such a thing? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. In other words, what higher voice do we need? You think you're a higher voice? Are you going to indict yourself now as a Christian when God says you're innocent? And you know you're not innocent. You feel like, well, I'm not innocent. Well, let me show you what happened. Here's Jesus and here's me. And we know that my sins and your sins were imputed is the fancy word, reckoned unto Jesus. So he bore my guilt. But see, what you don't probably understand as well as we should is that God actually saw Jesus as guilty. It wasn't like, hey, we'll pretend you're guilty. No, he saw Christ that way. But the flip side and the cause for great rejoicing is that Jesus' righteousness which he purchased with his own life from the second he became a human being, he lived a perfect life. There wasn't a day when he didn't do what was right. There wasn't a time when he thought in his heart some evil thing but just didn't do it. He always obeyed. He always loved. He always responded with grace. And when he hung on the cross, not only did he die for my sins, but his record of perfection was imputed to me and to you. We didn't, on the inside, become good people all of a sudden. This is a legal declaration by Almighty God. Now, He is working on the inside of us. That's another part of it. But what we're just talking about is this is justification. That's what it means. All right, let, now, another word is the word redemption, and it's in the same verse. It's in verse 24. And you can see that there is a connection between justification and redemption. He, he says, we're re justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. This is probably a word that we use more often than not. And it's probably used as, you and I use these words kind of as synonyms. I'm saved, I'm redeemed, I'm justified. I'm propitiated, we probably don't say that, but it's okay to, to regard them as synonyms for, hey, I'm saved, I accepted Jesus into my heart, hooray for me. I mean, you can, you can look at it that way, but what I'm trying to show you is that each of these words has a depth of meaning and blessing for you, and you can rejoice in what this word shows about your sin and what God did about it. So from the courtroom, which is, you know, what we've just been talking about, justification, we are now in the world of slavery. Redemption puts us in a place where we see our sin has caused us to be enslaved. Jesus himself said in John 8.34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave to sin. Here's another verse you might jot down, 2 P. 
Peter 2.19. How do you tablet people write stuff down? If I say, hey, you could write this down, I guess you could put it in your notes, but if you wanted to write it in the margin of your Bible, you're stuck, dude. What's going on? You do that then? Oh, wow. Well, I take back everything I've said about tablets. No, I don't. No, I don't. Nah. I, I think it's all, it's, you know. So you take notes. Okay, that's good. See, I learned something from Dan just on the way out. Come on, Dan. Hang out. Look at how much I could learn from you. Don't tell, let Uncle Sam push you around. Sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay, so 2 Peter 2.19 says, whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. So here's the deal. The aspect of sin that we're focused on with redemption is its enslaving power. And most people, most people, not all people, but most people who are not Christians don't think they're enslaved at all. Remember the, in the 90s, the, those three movies, the Matrix movies that came out? And it turns out everybody was actually plugged into the Matrix and they were just like harvesting energy from these poor people. And you could take, what was it, the red pill that woke you up? Or was it the, I can't remember which color it is, but I remember being offered the red pill or the green pill or the white pill or whatever it was. Anyhow, so people can be enslaved without knowing it. They, they don't have a clue. And that is actually spiritually true. It's only the Spirit of God in His work that can wake us up and draw us out of this. So sin brings slavery. And I want to just, I want to share a thought about slavery. In the history of our country, we have a terrible legacy of the enslavement of primarily black Africans 150 years ago. And nobody signed up for that. The slaves didn't sign up for that. They were ripped out of their families and out of their homeland. And so there's every reason to say that was terrible and we feel awful that that happened. But look, when we're talking about in the spiritual realm, slavery is voluntary. Every person on planet Earth who's enslaved to their sin, made choices that got them there, which means that God's action to draw us out is even more precious to us because justly, he could just leave anybody he wants to in whatever condition they're in. But redemption means God took action. Now, the way he took action is that in the ancient world, you could actually buy somebody out of slavery. It was called a redemption price or another word would be ransom. And so what he did was he paid the ransom price to get you out of slavery. And that was the death of Jesus Christ. And so the word of God is full of allusions to this. Let me give you some. Uh, Jesus himself said, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Does anybody know that's true? If the son sets you free, you are free. Well, Jesus also said what, what the Son had to do to make freedom happen. He said, even the Son of Man hasn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. The word ransom is the root word of the word redemption. Same basic Greek word, a ransom for many. 
First Peter chapter one reminds us what the ransom price was, knowing that you were ransomed, redeemed from the feudal ways inherited by your from your forefathers. In other words, there is there is a, you might say almost a genetic or racial component to sin where we are not born neutral or innocent. We have a sin nature. And from the get go, anybody who is actually a parent knows this to be true. There is something within every little baby um, that is that is not uh, glorifying to God who wants to say, all right, you people, I'm the center of the universe now and you you people all. And if that left unchecked, it becomes quite ugly by about age 13. Um, Knowing you were redeemed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with not with perishable things. Did you ever think of silver and gold being perishable? I mean, Scripture says not with perishable stuff like silver or gold, but with precious blood of Jesus, like that of a lamb without blemish. Turns out the Scripture says we are enslaved to the law. We are enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to the devil. In Galatians 3.13, says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do that? By becoming a curse for us. That's what I was trying to illustrate when I said that the father points to the son and says you're guilty. It's not an act. It's not a legal fiction. It's not just words. God saw him as cursed. The curse of the law fell on Jesus. See? And so his... Uh, the ransom price was his precious life. Hebrews 9:12 gives us the illusion of the Old Testament high priest who once a year would go behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies and bring the blood of sacrificial animals to atone for the sins of all of the people. Well, Jesus, this verse says, didn't do so by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood and notice securing an eternal Redemption. That's what redemption means. Justification. Redemption. Let me give you the last one. It's the hardest one to talk about. It's called propitiation. And if you have an NIV, it says sacrifice of atonement. I love the NIV and I used it for many years until the TNL of the NIV wanted to do gender neutral stuff. And I just said, that's it for me. But generally, it's a great translation. Not here, though. Sacrifice of atonement or a New Living um, Testament says sacrifice for sin in place of propitiation. Come on now. Of course, Jesus' death for us is a sacrifice for sin. And of course, it's an atoning sacrifice. But that's not what God was communicating when he used this word propitiation. Four or five years ago, more than that, probably, when Mark Strauss was here. Pastor Mark and I were at a church planting gathering and the, a bunch of church planters and this young church planter was addressing us and talking about how he preached and related to new people. And he said something like, and when he said it, he used mild profanity. And he said, you know, this is the way I talk in the pulpit, blankety blank. And uh, I thought, oh. And then he said, you know, but I would never, and then somehow he snatched out of the air the word propitiation. He said, I would never use that word. And I sat there stunned and I thought, okay, here's a preacher 
who wouldn't use the word propitiation. And why not? Because people don't get it. They don't understand it. It'd be too hard for someone new. But he would cuss. And I just thought, man, we are going down the tubes, folks. So I want to teach you, not just relate to you. Propitiation is an important word. It's a beautiful word. But you've got to sneak up on it because we don't use it much. In fact, we don't use it at all in our common language. You, if you watch old movies on Netflix, you might hear the adjective uh, propitious sometimes. And that is, that's how I'm going to sneak up on this. So you might hear someone say, um, the weather was not propitious for us to go sailing. And what that means is the weather's angry, it's bad weather, you're liable to get struck by lightning if you go out on the lake. So it's not propitious, it's not favorable. Or you might say, the sumptuous banquet made the king propitious toward his hosts. And what that implies is that the king was mad at these guys, wasn't favorable to them at all, but they threw him a big feast and it was so good that the king kind of changed his attitude and he became favorable toward them instead of mad at them. Which also reveals to you why people don't like the term propitious. Does God need to be propitiated? In other words, is he mad? Is he angry? Does he have wrath towards sinners? If so, propitiation is an important thing to look at. Well, that, that's why the NIV and the New Living and a whole bunch of other uh, paraphrases don't even want to deal with this because here's why. We don't like to think about God being a God of wrath. We would say, well, God is love. That's the main thing about I know about God. He's love. He's loving. He loves us all. He just he looks at people and they're committing, you know, sins, murder and and uh, adultery and breaking all the Ten Commandments. And he just goes, okay, you people, come here, come here. Come on, let's have a hug, come on. That is not only a, a sad example, but it's terrible theology. Yes, God is loving, obviously. But have you read the Old Testament? Have you read the New Testament? There is a, an element of wrath that we're going to have to deal with if we believe that this Bible is true. So, sin brings God's wrath. That is the truth. And I've already shown you one verse when we went back and we kind of read that indictment, chapter 1 and verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The word wrath... Here, the Greek word is orge, is used 12 times in Romans and 36 times in the New Testament. We can't just say, well, that doesn't, it doesn't apply to us today. That's an Old Testament idea. No, it's not. It's right here. Is it true or not true? If it's true, then, friends, I got some wonderful news for you. You were in an avalanche zone. You thought you were cool. You were just taking a little walk. You didn't realize you were lost. You passed a million signs that said avalanche zone. And another step, and the mountain was coming down on you. And you didn't realize the danger you were in. Somebody came and got you and rescued you. That's my illustration from last week. 
And in the process, one of the rescue team members perished. There was a death to get you out. You can't sit around and say, hey, you know, I appreciate being rescued, but I probably would have made it out because, you know, I'm a pretty good person and I know a little bit about, you know, outdoor stuff. You know, I watched a program one time. We can't have that attitude toward our salvation. Like, you know, there are some people who are serious sinners, but not me. I was out looking for God. No, you weren't. You were in an avalanche zone. You didn't even know it. The mountain was going to come down on you. The wrath of God. And here's the great news. What God did was he poured out his wrath on Christ instead of you. Have you ever wondered why in all of the New Testament, there's only one time when Jesus prays and doesn't address his father as father. And that one time is when he's hanging on a cross and he says, my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? The wrath of God was poured out upon him. And it's mind boggling because God, the son and his human nature, and we don't understand it all. But what we do know is that Jesus experienced a rejection and at the anger, the wrath of God. See, God's Part of why we are so exercised by the idea of anger or wrath in God is we see it as a weakness. And we know people who have anger problems and they, their company finally gets sick of it and they make them go to anger management courses, you know. And they should do that for their family because they've been abusing their wife or their children by yelling and sometimes by hitting. You know, we think of anger and wrath that way. That's not God. Our perfect God doesn't do that kind of stuff. I wrote a couple definitions down on God's wrath. Wrath is God's settled opposition to and displeasure with sin. God's wrath is his holy hatred of all that is unholy. If it is his righteous indignation at everything that is unrighteous. It is the temper of God towards sin. It is not God's uncontrollable rage. We're going to see next week how long his wrath was delayed. Um, it's not uncontrollable rage, vindictive bitterness or losing his temper, but it is the wrath. I like this phrase. It is the wrath of righteous reason and holy law. For the wrath of God is revealed. It poured out on Christ. He treated Jesus as if he was guilty of all your stuff and mine. Specifically, the time you lied, the time you committed adultery, the time you would have murdered that guy if you'd had the opportunity, all that stuff. He looked at Jesus and poured out his wrath upon him. Well, how come it only lasted such a short time? Jesus died and he came back. Well, because he's God, because he's perfect, because uh, he paid the reason you and I never get out of hell is because we can't pay it. I mean, that we have no opportunity to pay. We, we can't. We can't do it. We're always going to be in the slammer, so to speak, except it's eternal, you know, hell. Jesus paid it. By the value and perfection of his life, 
Jesus paid it. And you think, well, three days isn't much. Well, don't look at it that way. Look at it how wonderful and precious and righteous and valuable the life of Jesus is. He paid it off. That's why justice and love are at the heart of this and not just love. What God did was he poured out his wrath upon Christ instead of you whom he's chosen before the beginning of time. And that is what we call propitiation. These are wonderful truths that should lighten our step a little bit because we know for sure, if you're a Christian, you know for sure that you're never going to come into God's courtroom again and be retried for the stuff, the new stuff. All the old stuff and all the stuff yet to be done by you. I feel terrible about it, but Jesus handled all of that and God declared you innocent because of the righteousness of Christ. If you're a Christian, you may not feel free sometimes. I can give you that. Romans 6, Colossians 3 gives us a pattern for, you know, continuing to put to death what is evil within us, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, uh, which is idolatry. That's Colossians 3 that I'm quoting. So there's a pattern for growing uh, in holiness. But the real freedom has been secured. The, the door is not locked anymore. If you're standing in a prison, it's not because you need to. There, it's not locked. Walk out. And, and your freedom in Christ has been paid for. And God will never be mad at you. If you're a Christian, God's never going to be mad at you. So I know you feel that way. Sometimes you think, oh man, God must be mad at me. Look at all the stuff that's happening in my life. Might be fatherly discipline, but it's not wrath. He poured that out on Christ and that's done. This is done. Now, <clears throat> if perchance you're here and you haven't settled this with the Lord, and I'm looking around and I, I think I know everybody pretty much, but I don't know your heart. So, um, this is a heart issue. If you don't know Christ, can I tell you, you're in desperate need of his righteousness because you will appear guilty as charged before God's... I mean, you're not going to get off. And you, you may be plugged into the matrix and not know it, but you are enslaved. You need somebody to intervene and get you out. And... 